Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Jonathan Foley, Executive Director of Project Drawdown, to the podcast. Dr. Foley is a renowned environmental scientist, sustainability expert and author. His work is focused on understanding our changing planet and finding new solutions to sustain the climate, ecosystems and natural systems we all depend on. Before joining Project Drawdown, Dr. Foley led a number of world-leading environmental science and sustainability organizations. As executive director, Dr. Foley's key focus is on helping Drawdown turn its groundbreaking research into action. So thank you very much, Jonathan, for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks for having me. As you know, Jonathan, I interviewed Paul Hawken, Project Drawdown's former executive director some time ago, where we discussed the early days of Project Drawdown, its mission and, and early development. As the new executive director, I'd be interested in getting your perspective on where things are now with Project Drawdown and its future goals. Um, and maybe first you could say a few words about your background and what, what brought you to Project Drawdown. Well, yeah. So I'm a I'm a climate scientist by training, and uh, but then I spent a number of years in science communication, actually running a large museum in the U.S. And um, I love those two things: uh, doing climate science, but also uh, trying to share it with the world, and uh, and also making sure it serves a larger public good. And so uh, Project Drawdown, um, its first incarnation with the book and what came out a year or so ago, really intrigued me because it did two things really well. First, it did a, a very comprehensive and I think very thorough review of the state of the world on climate solutions across, as you know, about 100 different climate solutions were evaluated in that book. And uh, in fact, did much more research than you'd see in the book itself, um, a lot more work behind the scenes. Anyway, I think they did a remarkably good job of that, but then they also communicated it brilliantly. Rather than writing a you know, thousand-page technical volume with lots of acronyms and equations, they wrote basically a beautiful coffee table book that people could read and flip through and enjoy. And so I think on both fronts, they did a brilliant job and Drawdown 1.0, I call it, of uh, doing research on what we know about climate solutions, um, what's viable, what's not, how big are they, could they work, and so on, but also sharing it with the world in a most engaging and uh, clear way. And so that really brought me, um, you know, a lot of, uh, well, brought a lot of uh, good things to draw down um, 1.0 and certainly captured my attention. And I really admired it from afar before I ever joined the organization. Yes, absolutely. It's been a tremendous success. And I think uh, you, you can't know in advance how these things are going to work out. Um, you have a, a scientific background. And how, how does that inform uh, your work at, at Project Drawdown and the way you look at it? I guess it's worth maybe trying to get a sense of where you are, where Project Drawdown is in its evolution. You, you mentioned, you know, the publication of the book and, and yeah. looking mm -hmm. forward a little bit. So a couple of things wrapped up there. Yeah, well, I might parse that out a little bit because I do want to talk a lot about Drawdown 2.0, which we're just beginning to uh, – we'll be launching this fall. We've been quietly uh, designing uh, kind of this successor to Drawdown, a, a major new initiative. would be much, much larger, um, which will start to roll out in the coming months. Uh, probably take a good year or so to roll out all of it. Uh, so I definitely want to talk about that. But um, – the first part of your question about the science is um, whatever we do in Drawdown needs to be grounded in good science. 
but not obscure academic work that never gets seen. We have to find a sweet spot um, between rigor and uh, good, solid research, but also useful knowledge. Um, we have to kind of find you know, deep, uh, peer-reviewed knowledge that's verifiable, transparent, based on the data, based on facts, um, at a, you know, arm's length, trusted, you know, objective as possible, but also shared in a compelling way. And I think Project Drawdown, um, because we're about half kind of analyst in science and engineering and policy geeks, but we're also kind of half uh, writers and creative minds. And that's an unusual combination. And I think it was a, a kind of set down and even in Drawdown 1.0 as kind of the, um, the uh, theme of how we work. And uh, that's continuing today. So, you know, even though I'm a scientist, I'm also equally myself kind of a science communicator. And I think that's um, why um, I find Project Drawdown's kind of, um, you know, zeitgeist of what we do, if you will, um, to be so powerful. It's grounded in science, but it's told well. And that'll continue into Drawdown 2.0. Yes. I think that's a very interesting point you make there because there has been this gap, I guess, uh, between how scientists talk about uh, global warming in the most dramatic terms in their language and how that gets translated to the public. And um, I guess you've got views on that. And that is something that Drawdown does very well in terms of presenting the information in bite-sized bits. But in, in a sense, it does, it does allow you to take bits of it and it communicates it in, in a, a simple way, uh, not losing the complexity when you put the whole thing together. Well, that's kind of the idea. Um, um, the other thing Drawdown does really well, too, is not only does good research and tells it well to the world, it also crosses so many different normal disciplinary boundaries where academic research sometimes gets stuck. Because to solve climate change, uh, what we showed in the book, uh, the original book, was that um, we needed to do things in multiple sectors. Uh, we have to address electricity, but also food and agriculture and forestry and buildings and transportation and uh, materials and so on. And um, normally in the kind of more uh, siloed academic research in a university or a research institute, uh, you might have an expert on one of those things working on that uh, in isolation, but rarely together as a team. And so um, that's something else that Drawdown does very well is kind of looks across the entire suite of solutions. And, um, you know, Paul Hawken, our, our kind of uh, founder back in the first version, likes to say, you know, if there's, only, if there's one thing we can do about climate change is to remember there isn't just one thing to do about climate change. <laughs> and I think that's true, um, that solving uh, the climate crisis is going to be multifaceted and require multiple approaches and solutions simultaneously. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I mean, you, we talk about the communication here and how well it's done. As far as the public's concerned, clearly, the, you know, the, the structure of the book and the way that the information is presented, does that also matter as far as the policy audience is concerned? And can you talk a little bit about how the uh, drawdown ideas have been received in terms of the policy world? Yeah, when I first started it, so I've worked for Drawdown about, I don't know, eight or nine months now, I guess. And um, I, first couple of months, I spent a lot of time talking to people in other organizations, including businesses and um, uh, policy circles and so on, and, and you know, including uh, CEOs and politicians and leaders in those areas. And I was struck by how they value Drawdown, too. Uh, I knew it was well accepted in the kind of broader environmental, you know, interested lay public. Um, a lot of the environmental community saw Drawdown as a hopeful book that showed us that climate change can be solved. And that was great. Um, and it definitely captured the larger imagination. But it was also, I think, deeply respected uh, in the research community, but also in policy circles and in business. And that it didn't surprise me, but I was pleased. And I, I often ask them why. 
And um, one of the answers I got was quite telling. They said, well, because it's so clear and it's so uh, kind of affirming. Imagine a group, uh, you're, imagine you're the CEO or imagine you're of a company or imagine you're a political leader and you're trying to get people behind you to um, support your climate, you know, your climate actions that you want to do as a leader. Um, you could say, what do we want? And you could say, they might say, um, we gradually want to phase down greenhouse gas emissions following the Paris Accords, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, following a 1.5 degree protocol. You know, when do we want it? Well, eventually phased in over the next few decades. <laughs> you know, like That's hardly a call to action. But instead say, what do we want? We want drawdown. We want to bring the pollution back down. When do we want it? As soon as possible. And here's how. It's a much more compelling story. It's, it's like even the word drawdown evokes like, hey, we can solve this. We, there's a point in the future where we start to reverse the climate pollution, that we begin to restore our planet to health. Um, that's much more evocative, positive, and interesting as a vision of the future than anything like the IPCC or normal policy circles talk about. So I think it was the use of language, the positive terms. This book wasn't just for the broader kind of lay public, even though it engaged them. Uh, policymakers paid attention too, especially the more savvy politicians and CEOs said it's because of the framing. It was seen as positive, bold, possible, and engaging. Who wouldn't want that? And that's half the problem with climate change is we've been talking about it in ways that aren't inspiring people. We're either scaring people uh, with the doom and gloom part of the story or we're bogging them down with all this minutia and acronyms and boring language. Uh, Jonathan tried to fix some of that, and I think they were partly successful. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, Jonathan. Now, it seems like the mood has changed, I think, in the last six, nine months. There's a lot more momentum. You've seen uh, Greta Thunberg, Extinction Rebellion. You've seen storms. You've seen a, a confluence of events and ideas and uh, responses from, from on the ground, which, which seem to be changing the mood, and there seems to be uh, considerable momentum now towards at least accepting the you know the implications of, of climate change mm -hmm. do you do you get a sense of that and, and can you talk a little bit about that and how informs we're going to talk a little bit about uh drawdown 2.0 but presumably the context as well in which we, we sit today will influence that well absolutely i mean um it's very um well gratifying wouldn't be the right word <laughs> maybe a relief um that the world is now paying attention to climate change and acknowledges that it's real and it's serious. Uh, we finally have gotten through to this after maybe 30 to 40 years of uh, at least of the scientific community uh, warning the world that this is a serious issue. Um, in the United States, where I'm based, for example, over 90% of Americans now believe that climate change is real or it could be real. Um, that's we won, you know, like, well, it's about 91 to 93 percent. So the battle for uh, belief on climate change has won, period, even in the United States, which was kind of the one of the last holdouts on this. And so um, the world believes climate change is real. Now we have to ask, what are we going to do about it? And so I want to jump ahead and um, I, and stop the, you know, let's wring our hands and yell and scream and try to get people's attention with a doom and gloom story. Now we need to move on and say, well, instead of telling people what the problem is, let's start working on the solutions. So that's where Drawdown 2.0 comes in. Um, in Drawdown 1.0, we were always solutions-oriented, but we kind of described the possibility of solving climate change. We said that Drawdown was possible, and we described scenarios and tools with which we could get there. 
that was fantastic. But in Drawdown 2.0, we want to get there. We actually want to implement Drawdown and actually make it really happen. And so that's the difference. And I think the time is now. And there's a huge demand. Um, the world has woken up finally to climate change, the reality of the problem. And they're desperately grabbing for solutions. And um, some of those, you know, conversations are pretty naive. Some of them are really spot on. But we need to get to work and actually move the needle on this and solve the problem. And that's really what Drawdown 2.0 is about. Yes, excellent. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. I, mean, I was mm-hmm. just talking about the change in the in, in the mood and so forth. A, a couple of things are notable. Uh, the, the food system is is at the heart, really, of, uh, I mean, there's 100 solutions, but it's certainly highlighted in, in Drawdown, the importance of the food system, the impact of meat and, and, and the kinds of farming systems we have. That is is increasingly in the public uh, domain and people are talking about this. And also reforestation, regeneration, mm-hmm. ideas like that. So I don't know whether you could talk a little bit about two different related ideas, I guess, but um, certainly uh, interesting to see how they're getting a lot of attention at the moment. Yeah, that's very gratifying as well. And for me personally, because that's an area uh, when I was still a research scientist, um, I worked on quite a lot of for over 20 years was the role of the land surface in contributing to climate change, uh, whether it's in deforestation uh, or in our food system. And uh, even the quote-unquote experts on climate change have been kind of neglecting that component, focusing only on the fossil fuel side of the equation. But it turns out, um, as I think everybody knows now after the last week or two, finally, that uh, food and land use and how we use forest combined kind of our use of the world's land is contributing about a quarter of the climate change uh, that we're causing today. In the past, it was actually more than a quarter. Uh, But today, it's about a quarter of today's climate change is caused by the land and how we use it, farming and forest, essentially. Um, That's incredible because that's also equal to the largest energy sector. It's equal to all the world's electricity. That's also about a quarter of today's climate change. And yet, uh, when you think about climate change, if you were to do a Google search of climate change solutions and look at images, I guarantee you 90% of them are windmills and solar panels. But how many of them are protecting a forest or of you know, reducing beef consumption or food waste and that kind of thing? So I'm really pleased that Drawdown 1.0, which again was written um, you know, two years ago and the research happened before that, uh, eight of the top 20 solutions are in the food system and in forest and agriculture. And that's because that's where a lot of the solutions are. Now, let me make a really important point here. I'm only talking here about reducing the emissions of greenhouse gases. And even there, land plays a quarter of the whole role of the emissions sectors that we have to work with. So, you know, if we could reduce the emissions from land, that's a quarter of the contributions humanity makes to climate change. But there's another way that land plays a crucial role in climate change is also is not just reducing the emissions. It's also providing a sink of carbon dioxide and sometimes methane out of the atmosphere. That's really exciting because it turns out um, only 45% of the CO2 we put in the atmosphere every year stays there contributing to climate change. Nature right now absorbs 55% of our annual CO2 emissions mostly on land, but also in the oceans. Now, it turns out nature's doing this all without our help. It's just natural photosynthesis in recovering forest, in, you know, out in the ocean and kelp um, beds and places like that. But it's uh, happening on land mostly. If we humans, though, could uh, work with nature, whether it's in our forestry practices, 
planting new forest or through regenerative agriculture, we can maybe enhance that natural sink. So that's the kind of one-two punch that agriculture can have on climate change. One, we could dramatically reduce emissions. And two, we might be able to enhance these natural sinks that naturally remove carbon out of the atmosphere. And so um, fixing our food system and how we use land can actually be the most important thing we materially do to address climate change, in my opinion. I think it's hugely important. And Drawdown 1.0 got it right. And uh, it's nice to see finally the IPCC finally say so this year, um, <laughs> even though they largely ignored it for, for over a couple of decades. Uh, it's finally getting some more attention in the mainstream, which is really good. And it's backed up by good science. Yes, uh, very important, and, and as you say, getting a lot of attention, although not without its uh, challenges. A lot of these oh, yeah. uh, you know, approaches, they're very <laughs> widely distributed, they're very difficult to, to, to manage centrally, but absolutely uh, crucially important. And I think the, the value and importance of the regeneration and the, the ideas in, in Drawdown are, are highly inspiring. Just before we go on, I, I was interested to see the scale of, of the, which went land use again, but the indigenous peoples and how important a role they they have is something like a quarter of land is somehow being managed by them and so forth and um that's quite a significant impact something that is dealt with in drawdown as well yeah drawdown got that right too i think um ahead of other folks uh, which is pretty nice um uh, very gratifying but uh it's very important to note that and a lot of people um saw that in drawdown that we said you know helping indigenous peoples manage their land was another climate solution some people um, I know kind of looked at that and crossed their eyes a bit and said, oh, that's just political correctness. What the hell has that got to do with climate change? I'm like, no, there's good data here that shows objectively that indigenous communities uh, that, that you know steward their land, that have been multi-generational stewards of these landscapes, uh, create landscapes and manage them in ways that have more biodiversity and more productivity and often much more carbon. Uh, in the U.S., for example, the state of Wisconsin, uh, you can look at it from outer space with satellite imagery, and there's a big green block of forest that's darker and green and much richer looking from outer space than all the surrounding forest. It happens to be a Native American reservation of the Menominee people, and because they manage their forest in a fundamentally different way than the other people, mostly European descendants, uh, have managed forest around them. And you can, I mean, it's visible from space for crying out loud. So it's really interesting that, you know, um, not everybody, but most indigenous communities manage forest with richer biodiversity and more biomass, more carbon in the soils, more carbon in the wood, in the forest. And uh, this is important, especially today, as we see the Brazilian government fundamentally change direction um, in terms of forest policy. Uh, the new government is really opening up the rainforest again, encouraging widespread deforestation, lowering the protection of indigenous peoples and their lands and cultures, and also um, kind of getting rid of the protections for nature. This is reversing what had been an incredibly good trend. Brazil had dropped its deforestation rate by about 80% over the, pre the previous 15 years, an incredible success story for the planet. Uh, that'd be like taking every car in Germany and France off the road forever is what they did in terms of just lowering CO2 emissions from deforestation. Absolutely incredible. Uh, but now we're seeing what the potential to lose a lot of those incredible gains in Brazil. 
So one of the most important drawdown solutions to me right this moment would be to send as much help as we can as in terms of legal help uh, to represent them in court, um, in terms of public reaction, in terms of international pressure through corporations, through campaigns, whatever, to help indigenous communities in Brazil protect their forest from this onslaught. I think it's the most important thing we can do on the planet this year. Oh, absolutely. And I think what's striking and um, something I wasn't really quite so aware of, we're talking about the, the attention being paid to forests now and trees and regeneration. And I think Ethiopia planted a record number was 350 million trees. And in, in, it was it a day. And this is a remarkably short period of time. But actually, that pales in significance and really doesn't have any significant impact compared to actually stopping the deforestation and stopping the destruction of the primary forests themselves. So, well, right. We need both, of course. Um, and, and we have to be mindful about this too. I mean, my ecologist friends would want me to step in and say, we need to you know, protect the world's remaining healthy forest, of course, wherever they are, not just in Brazil and Indonesia, but, you know, in Europe and the United States and Japan everywhere. Um, but also, you know, especially these tropical forests that have so much biodiversity, so much biomass and are incredibly important. Um, but also reforestation, kind of planting trees in places um, that – but the point here is we should be planting trees where they make sense. Um, planting trees everywhere doesn't automatically make sense. There are a lot of grassland ecosystems and semi-arid regions that really shouldn't be forested, that the native vegetation of those regions will be you know, grasses and shrubs and forbs. And that's really what nature in, you know, what evolved in those landscapes. So we just have to be a bit mindful um, that um, there was a study that came out a few weeks ago saying something like planting a trillion trees would take out, you know, a big share of our future CO2 emissions. Um, that's true. It would take 200 years for those trees to do all of that job, by the way. But we can't just, uh, you know, plant trees indiscriminately everywhere. They're, and one, they may not survive. And two, they may not be the right thing. So we just want to be a little bit careful to plant, you know, like native things where they belong. Uh, so we don't create more of a problem later. But within that boundary, uh, there's a hell of a lot we can do. And, um, you know, the old joke of, you know, when's the best, plant, the best time to plant a tree? The answer, well, 50 years ago. What's the second time, best time to plant a tree? Well, that's today. <laughs> so um, we could be doing a little bit of that, and it will help. It's not the solution to climate change, but as Drawdown's always said, there's never one solution to this problem. We're going to need dozens and dozens, and preventing deforestation and enhancing reforestation and afforestation are crucial. Absolutely. And we can dig in deep into any one of these uh, solutions and, and talk for oh, yeah. great, great <laughs> periods of time. But thank you. Thank you for that. One other area, and I guess this is a very big area, but it, I guess uh, it's quite a daunting task um, just to keep up on a, a day to day or week to week basis with new technologies and what's going on. This is an area, I guess, um, you know, a potentially vitally important area. I mean, notwithstanding the slight West Coast, should we say, uh, overselling of the, the, the benefits of technology or how technology will sell us, there is no doubt that, you know, new technologies will play an, uh, an important role and the whole area of coming attractions. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's, it's some time now since the book was published and, you know, w you read from one day to the next about uh, new ideas. You think, wow, this could be it. This could be... Now, it's completely against the philosophy of drawdown with the you know let a thousand flowers bloom and yet at the same time we are seeing new technologies and new ideas coming out well we certainly are um but we shouldn't forget old technologies uh so i, I find it amusing to talk about things like you know, artificial leaves and you know devices that could capture carbon out of the atmosphere for example direct air capture 
that's getting a lot of attention lately. But, you know, of course, nature has invented that technology in the first place, you know, billions of years ago called photosynthesis, and it works pretty well. So I'm actually a little bit old fashioned in some of this stuff. I, I love some of the new technologies, uh, some of which I think are really necessary. Um, but some I kind of wonder, like, why are we worrying about that when we could be doing something with, you know, nature or simpler solutions? So some of the coming attractions I like best are, for example, um, dealing with um, things like, um, well, for example, smart concrete. Like, you know, how do we make concrete and cements that are, um, you know, maybe uh, absorbing CO2 instead of releasing CO2? That would be a really, really interesting new kind of uh, focus area because concrete is such a big emitter of CO2 today. We're going to have to fix that. And so, you know, I'm very interested in what chemical engineers can do with this. Um, autonomous vehicles, that sounds like something that might be, you know, not too far in the distant future. Um, at least, you know, I live near Silicon Valley, so you see these things running around the streets quite often now. And uh, so that's kind of interesting whether or not it's really uh, a transportation solution. I'm not so sure. But the, the sectors that worry me the most on climate change are not electricity not agriculture and forestry, because I think we have solutions to those problems. The ones that worry me the most are buildings and transportation because of the huge amount of infrastructure we've already invested in into kind of broken systems that we need to reinvent. And so things that, like new kinds of concrete, how we can retrofit buildings, how we can use existing transportation infrastructure, but with a lot less carbon intensity, those are things I think we really need technological focus on. Um, but on the other hand, there are a lot of solutions we have ready um, in our hands today that we should be deploying. So, yeah, sometimes we need R&D, but a lot of what we need is deployment. Yes, absolutely. I, one, one thing we haven't really discussed about is the urgency of the matter. <laughs> I mean, it, it's striking just how urgent and existential this is, how virtually all of the projections scientists make about things that worry them in terms of environmental problems we we get there decades possibly ahead ipcc is is quite conservative there's no doubt that we've a, a very very narrow window 2050 is a kind of time frame for for looking at, at a lot of these solutions these solutions in drawdown are you going to be thinking about other kind of time frames and, 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 and trying to think about things that uh, how they play out in time and are scheduled as well as urgency? Yeah, that's that's a lot of what we're being asked today. Um, let me yeah, let me just walk through this a little bit. Um, we hear a lot today from media, basically, but not from scientists saying that climate change is happening faster than IPCC first predicted. That's not true. Uh, the global mean temperatures and what's happening to the ocean, you know, all of that is happening exactly as the models predicted back in the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, this happened, even what Arrhenius did at the end of the 19th century. Uh, so climate change is playing out pretty much on schedule. This notion that it's happening faster than we predicted is not really true. Uh, so, you know, that's just a little caution there. Nevertheless, it's happening fast, it's real, and it's serious. I think just people are getting caught off guard, but those, the scientists who have been working on this are not really that surprised. So we need to be careful about that. Second is we hear a lot about these boundaries, like you know, um, you know, a target of you know, hitting 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees. Um, those are political judgments, not scientific ones. Um, no scientist ever came up with those numbers. They were just kind of asked of the scientific community by basically policymakers. But even the most conservative, the idea of like, let's try to hit 1.5 degrees, basically says we have to get to essentially no emissions by 2050, which is still 30 years away. 
Um, the folks, uh, there's a group of like Johan Rockström and others out of Potsdam and Stockholm that have done this thing called the Exponential Roadmap. It just tells us like, hey, look, if you want to get to um, essentially zero emissions by 2050, here's one path you could try. It's exponential decay. Um, it basically says, let's cut our emissions in half between now and 2030. Let's cut them in half again between 2030 and 2040. And let's cut them close to zero by 2050. Okay. Well, if you do that and you just do the math, it turns out that would take a little less than 7% reductions per year, compound interest, to get there. Well, if your retirement fund and or if you're a business and you're not growing your stock value by 7% a year, you're going to be fired, you know, on average, not every year. That's a very typical kind of growth rate of our financial assets of a company, right? Um, in fact, you know, you'd, you'd be a successful company if you did better than that. So I look at that and I say, I don't think 7% decarbonization rate is impossible. And that's what the most aggressive climate target we've ever proposed, 1.5 degrees. If we let it go to 2 degrees, it needs to be something like 4% a year. We can do that. In fact, the United States already is. The UK already has. The UK peaked its emissions in the 1990s. It's now 40% lower emissions than at its peak. The United States, we peaked our emissions in 2007, and uh, it's now 15% in only 10 years, which isn't fast enough, but it's a pretty good start. So I think we have some track record. I think we have some momentum, and the math is daunting, but not impossible. And so I think if we kind of, but it sounds impossible if we say we need to get to zero by 2050. Well, getting to zero right now sounds crazy. But if you said I only need a few percent and then another few percent and a few more percent and we can start in electricity, then we can move to food, then we can move to build, you know, whatever. If we chip away at this problem year by year, sector by sector, a little at a time, but with, you know, pointed the right way and pushing as hard as we can, I think we can get there. I don't think the math is insurmountable really at all. It just sounds that way. But we do have to pick up the speed of what we've been doing, that's for sure. Uh, do you worry about tipping points then? It, they're quite difficult to pin down, but um, you know, the nonlinear responses is a phenomenon. Yeah, we, I mean, there are already some happening, and um, climate models already include them. Um, so um, there's a lot of breathless talk about tipping points um, but, and nonlinearities. And the, the climate system is very nonlinear. For example, right now we're seeing the loss of snow and ice in the Arctic. Um, as you get rid of snow and ice in the Arctic, as it warms up, you're also getting rid of that highly reflective bright white surface that reflects solar radiation back into space, keeping it colder than it otherwise would be. So warming that melts the ice makes it warmer, which melts even more ice and so on. So we're already seeing that positive feedback loop in the Arctic. And uh, that was predicted, too, back in the 1970s. We knew that was going to happen, and it is. Um, we're here about, like, methane releases. Um, yes, generally yes. speaking, that's not seen as a major deal yet. They're very, very small compared to other natural and human emissions. Um, so we, we have to keep an eye on that. But the best studies I've seen suggest that is possible, but an unlikely scenario, at least in the near term. Um, there are other feedbacks, of course. Um, the slowdown of the uh, people get this wrong all the time. The Gulf Stream is not slowing down. What's called the meridional overturning circulation of the Norwegian Sea may be slowing down. That will have an effect over Norway and Ireland, let's say, but it's not going to be plummeting it into an ice age or anything like that. Um, in fact, it may you know keep it from warming. That's all. 
So I think there's sometimes a little over-interpretation. I mean, we nonlinear systems, absolutely, there will be some dramatic regional changes in climate that we're already seeing some of. Um, but the, we don't know where those boundaries are, and that's why I think, you know, saying, oh, let's stop at 1.5 or 2.0 or 3.0, whatever. Well, the best place to stop would have been zero. We kind of blew past that one already. Uh, so the be- next best time is to stop as soon as we can and uh, do as li- little damage as we can. But we're already causing damage, and we're we're heading towards unknown territories on this planet. Uh, we, we've never lived in a planet like this before, and no human has. Um, the last time CO2 levels were this high was over 5 million years ago. So even our ancient ancestors didn't live on a planet like this. And so we're chartering a unknown territory, and that's dangerous considering we only have one planet, and we critically depend on how it works. So um, I guess, you know, I don't want to be fearful, but I'm, I'm, you know, saying this is, we don't want to do what we're doing. We should stop as soon as possible. <laughs> but fear, fear isn't a good strategy. No, it's clearly been, I mean, the environmental movement over several decades, at least, have have had this problem, really, in terms of how they present ideas and so forth. Um, And it's clearly a key part of the the successive drawdown, really, is looking, you know, positive opportunities and, uh, and solutions and, you know, the way you describe things and looking at things into the future. And I, I'll come back to that uh, a little bit later. But you talked about this movement to draw down 2.0. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's yeah. a quite a different kind of thing. I mean, talking to the drawdown researchers over the last year, it's been striking at the, the challenges that have been involved in gathering the data, making judgments, compiling it, and putting it all together, which is, you know, a remarkable feat, uh, very research-driven, and uh, takes very, very specific kind of skills. And uh, looking to the future, is it going to be different? Trying to implement change, is, is clearly challenging. And I guess one of the other uh, elements is that there are so many different solutions and many of them are not centralized. It's not like going to have a conversation with, you know, the head of the Bank of England or, or you know, somebody like that or even a prime minister. I mean, you, you know, around the world, clearly uh, politicians can make a difference, but it's an immense challenge. How are you a- approaching that? What, what's your way of thinking about that, Jonathan? Yeah, so, um, well, Drawdown 1.0, we, we published this amazing book, which is fantastic, very helpful, did a lot of good, and, and behind it is a lot of research. Drawdown 2.0, we want to be uh, much more proactive in helping the world implement climate solutions. So we're, we're working on three main strategies. The first strategy is, believe it or not, the world doesn't have a really good kind of go-to place to learn about the latest information on climate solutions. Where do you go? Where do you find out about all these things? The best thing ever done so far was a book that already is obsolete, kind of. Well, not obsolete, but it's getting out of date month by month as technologies and markets and economies are changing. So um, the first strategy for Drawdown is to move away from books to have a much more digital-focused strategy and build the world's best kind of go-to place for climate solutions. First and foremost, it's going to have research and models available that are going to be updated continuously on the fly as we learn more uh, sector by sector, they're going to be updated constantly. So we'll be issuing many more reports, kind of white papers, new models, new solutions, new data on an ongoing basis uh, so that it's really fresh up to the minute, if you will, kind of research. That's job number one. Second is we want to build a directory of the world's uh, organizations and projects that are implementing these drawdown solutions. That was actually one of the things people asked us for more than anything 
it's like, wow, it's great that you're telling me about these solutions in theory, but I want to know who's actually doing them. Who is doing this deforestation project? Who might be trying these new concrete materials? Who's trying this kind of mangrove restoration or whatever? Uh, so we want to build kind of a searchable global database where you can search by geography, by sector, by kind of organization, by size, whatever, uh, that might have millions of entries before we're done where you can scan the world looking for who's implementing climate solutions. And we're hoping they'll find each other and start to collaborate and create a network effect uh, where they start to amplify and reinforce each other and accelerating the rate of change, accelerating deployment, and also allow investors and philanthropists and governments to find them so they can start directing capital into them and accelerate them even further. But right now, you know, if you wanted to find out who in the world is really on the cutting edge of implementing climate solutions, good luck. I don't know where you'd even begin, but soon it'll be drawdown. Uh, third thing we want to do, so research and models. Second is kind of a directory of who's really doing what. Uh, third area is we want to do a lot more storytelling. Uh, in the first um, drawdown, we wrote about each solution, but we wrote about it as a technology, as a policy, as a practice. But there were no people in them. We didn't tell a story about humans who are actually doing this. Who are the heroines? Who are the heroes? Who are the people implementing these solutions? A very human story that kind of makes you want to stand up and cheer. So I think the world needs to hear these stories. And so we want to work with major media outlets and others to tell, like, how do we lift out the human stories of Drawdown that get other people, not just the climate interested, but everyone to say, wow, this is something I want to be part of. This is exciting. This is great. Let's go out and implement that. Uh, we also want to create like uh, educational materials to kind of have like, you know, how do you first learn about climate solutions? We have thousands and thousands of online materials and courses. You can take a whole online course on climate change, the problem, and learn about the greenhouse effect and how it works and how we're all going to warm the planet and mess everything up. But where do you go to learn about where do I start on climate solutions? Where's the course on that? There isn't any. So we're going to change all that. So that's what Drawdown 2.0's first strategy is, is build a really great digital go-to place for climate solutions research, tools and models, directories of people implementing them, and networks, educational materials, and stories that highlight what the world is doing in very evocative, exciting new ways. That's our kind of first strategy. The second strategy for Drawdown 2.0 is work with actors on the ground who are implementing Drawdown solutions and help them get going. Uh, we're going to work in four areas as pilots this coming year or so just to get off the ground. First would be with cities around the world. Uh, it was so surprising and very heartening to see how many communities wrote to us at Drawdown during 1.0 and asked for help. Like, I want to form a Drawdown community in, you know, in, you know, in Cambridge, in England, for example, that's one that wrote to us, or in Portland, Oregon, or in, um, you know, Seattle, Washington, or in, you know, Aberdeen, Scotland, or whatever. We got thousands and thousands of communications like this, mostly from small nonprofits or civic groups that said, could you help us get started? How do I look at this list of 100 climate solutions and find out which are the best 10 for my city and my community? How do I convince other people in my community to get started with me to get moving on these solutions? How do I engage my policymakers, businesses, and neighbors? We didn't really know what to do in Drawdown 1.0. We were completely overwhelmed by that um, request, but now we're standing up to see how we can meet it. Uh, we're also working with businesses that want to do a lot to address climate change, not just greening their own operations. Of course, they should do that. But we're interested in working with businesses who truly want to lead and actually use 
they're you know delivering products and goods and services to their customers and to the world they'll let all of us implement climate solutions not just within the company but how the company can change the world so we're working with a few leading companies in that area we also want to work with investors to move capital into climate solutions we're going to need to move you know billions and billions of dollars as soon as possible into the right places there are people investing in climate solutions, but I'm worried that they're putting the money in the wrong places or too much of it in just a few places. Um, my look at the venture capital funding is about 80% of the funding is going to 20% of the climate solutions. We need to diversify and show the world where we can also invest and see new ideas. And same thing with philanthropy. That's the fourth area we want to focus in. Uh, again, how do we take philanthropic funding and put it into the most viable solutions and a really diverse portfolio of solutions. So it's really looking at the whole board, not just somebody's pet project. Uh, way too much philanthropy and uh, venture capital has gone into just the electricity sector. I don't think nearly enough into food and agriculture and forestry, for example, or materials or building retrofits or transportation, other sectors we need. And I want Drawdown to be kind of informing those conversations so people can move billions of dollars. So that's kind of our second strategy is be really close to communities, businesses, investors, and philanthropists. We'll add other sectors later that we want to help. Um, I'm especially interested in the youth movement around climate change, the, the Greta effect, if you will. Can Drawdown be uh, helpful to that kind of, um, that kind of uh, movement? That would be very, very interesting. We're kind of exploring some ideas there. So that's, again, where Drawdown will try to help people implementing climate solutions and see how we can be a guide kind of a coach, uh, a teacher, if you will, to help them get started in a fact-driven, kind of uh, data-driven way of like, let's really go out and solve these problems. And here's a guide to that. Uh, the third strategy is kind of longer term. Um, and we're just kind of beginning to think about this. But we also not only need to implement solutions, we need to change the narrative on climate change. Um, far too much of the narrative in uh, Western Europe, the U.S., and other places is that climate change is real, but it's also hopeless, that we can't solve it. It's too big. The politicians have failed us. The greedy corporations are standing in our way and all that. Well, they're right, but that's a narrative of failure, and we can change that narrative, that climate change in Drawdown's lens is actually solvable. And the only thing standing between us and solving climate change is us. And so let's talk about how we can solve it. Let's showcase the people who are. And uh, I want to start, you know, changing the narrative to one of, you know, kind of possibility and optimism, uh, not blind optimism, but a cautious optimism that, hey, if we really rolled up our sleeves, we can solve this problem. But Drawdown, we're a small organization. So our third strategy is, you know, how do we influence the media influencers? How do we get the editorial pages, the um, movie producers, documentary filmmakers, photographers, writers, artists, Influ influential media icons and so on. How do we get them to start talking about this new narrative where we pull together, harness our forces, harness the creativity of our species and solve climate change? Uh, I think we need to interject that narrative into the world and draw down. We want to influence the people who can. So those are our three strategies, kind of a go-to place for climate solutions to help guide people who are implementing them out in the real world so we can move you know, huge organizations to do the right thing as quickly as possible. And third, try to change the narrative worldwide eventually to one of possibility of a better future instead of a glum kind of vision of, nah, everything's going to hell. You know, 
Um, <laughs> I like to say in the U.S., like, you know, uh, if you want to affect change, you have to give people a vision of a better future. And Martin Luther King, for example, didn't go around the U.S. in the 60s saying, I have a nightmare. He said, I have a dream. You know, let me show you a dream of a better world where we live more equitably. I think Drawdown and others could show a dream of a better world where we actually make a sustainable world and avoid the worst of climate change and leave a better world for our children. I want that world, and I think other people do too. It's a striking, a powerful vision, um, Jonathan, and very inspiring, and I, I think the way you frame it. Uh, there's one, one thing I wanted to, to talk about. Action is clearly important, and you talk about business, and I, I think in a recent interview where you were talking about you know this, this was the single biggest business opportunity in human history. And I just wonder, are there dangers in framing this in this way? We talked about the 7% you know, figures that corporations are, need to get and so forth, the growth figures. And, and there are many people who worry that it's actually this is at the root of the problem, is this kind of pursuit of endless economic growth. Well, that's a bigger philosophical debate, and I, I think it's a good one to have. Um, I'm trying to meet the world where it is rather than some fantasy world that I might like to have um, because I'm a pragmatist. I want to just solve the problem. Um, I think we can solve climate change within the current political economic realities. It is, you know, a lot of people say it's not a technical problem. It's I'm like, actually it is. If we could power the world and feed the world with different technologies, uh, we could actually do so without causing catastrophic climate change. It's that simple. We know how to do it. It is actually, at the end of the day, a technical engineering and capital problem. But Jonathan, you say um, that, you say that, but that if we continue to grow at two and a half percent per year, in the next 30 years, 25, 30 years, we're going to double the material output on the planet. Now, this isn't just about climate change, but it's a, a whole series of nested and interconnected environmental problems. So can we do that at the same time? Well, no, that's the difference between development and growth. I mean, this is the old, you know, Herman Daly kind of economic argument. I think we can now listen. And now, by the way, I am not some kind of, you know, unmitigated capitalist. I'm not advocating for that. But I'm saying there is within the a world like we have today of a, a reformed version of capitalism where we can still have tremendous economic development, a richer and more enriching world uh, that does bring with it benefits. Uh, that actually uses less materials, less energy, less land, less water, less carbon than it does today. Um, you know, the, the, idea, the idea that growth and development are the same thing is absolutely ridiculous. So unfortunately, right now, the way we do some capital, I mean, what we have now, we don't actually have capitalism. What we have is profiteering. We have people who are liquidating the planet, making a short-term profit. That's not actual, you know, real long-term capitalism, which is, you know, should value the capital within nature, human capital, build capital, and so on. A richer nation, in my mind, is one where the soils are getting better over time, that has more forest and more fish and cleaner water and better educated citizens who are healthier. So when I think of a kind of a, you know, a reform to a capitalist way of life, it's one with a much more, you know, socially conscious, environmentally conscious, you know, lens on it. And I think that's not incompatible with the way we run the world today, but it's certainly a big change. Um, but I, so I guess I see, you know, I'm not an advocate for unbridled economic growth at all, um, not one bit. But I think we have to just be um, kind of pragmatist here and say, look, there are ways of doing business the way we do them in the world today, and uh, that actually respect the planet, that can actually provide, you know, good economic opportunities for more people, for nature, for the future. And I'd like to encourage that. Um, I don't think just wringing our hands saying we must smash capitalism to solve climate change is at all helpful or realistic. 
Because do you really think the rest of the 7 billion people on this planet are going to just do that voluntarily? Do you see China just giving up on a capitalist way? I don't see that. Do you see that in Europe? Do you see that in North America? I don't. So I think we have to kind of nudge the system in ways that can be better for people and for the planet. And to do that, I think actually is an incredible business opportunity, like to provide humane goods and services to the world in a more sustainable way that lifts up the people across all walks of life and thinks about the future and respects nature would be an incredible opportunity. But the way we do business today isn't that isn't being rewarded. So I think that's the paradox of our times. Markets are really good at solving problems. A more informed vision of capitalism would not necessarily be bad for the world, but we have a very poor copy of it today that is greedy. It's about profiteering for just a few while liquidating the planet and liquidating our future. So I totally understand the frustration of the way businesses run today, but I don't think we're just going to throw it away. I'd like to reform it and make it smarter. And I think there are ways to do that. At least I hope so. Yes, the small matter of corporations need to maximize their profits is single variable. Now, there's a lot of growth and there's a lot of movement, there's the B Corps and so forth. Do you find that with the people yeah. you talk to? Are you finding that people are drawn to drawdown that are the, are the more visionary, more inspired? Because it is a challenge. It is a challenge. If you've got a fiduciary responsibility to maximize your profits and the investor has a fiduciary responsibility. Now, these are up for a discussion, clearly, in how they've been interpreted in business law and so forth. But it does restrict in certain ways what you can do and what you can't do do you find that you're talking to business people at a significant level in in big corporations that get it oh absolutely uh without a doubt um unfortunately they're a minority um and also they feel they feel trapped a bit by their what they see as their short-term fiduciary responsibility but these are often very very smart people who kind of get it um so yeah the advice of the b corporations that you know are explicitly charged with social and environmental good as well as financial responsibility but you think of the idea of a corporation i mean if you go back to corporate law corporations first responsibility isn't to make money for shareholders every quarter their first duty is to continue to exist which means sustainability actually the first duty of a corporate entity I mean, corporations were built with the intention of lasting forever to outlive any humans to be an institution that you know perpetuates itself legally we go back to the you know the dutch east indies company that's a big company or these you know old corporations that's what they were designed for originally and uh, so the idea that sustainability is optional for corporations like no it's your first and number one requirement period is to continue to exist and that also means in this world that the resources you use, the environment within, within which you operate, your customers, your supply chains, and the world around you must also be part of your sustainability commitment. Um, I just don't see that wisdom entering too many boardrooms right now, but it's starting to. B Corps, uh, you look at like uh, Paul Pullman at Unilever, he's a pretty inspiring leader. Uh, Ray Anderson from Interface is kind of legendary in this regard. You look at companies like Patagonia and others. So you do see some leadership in the private sector. And let's face it, the private sector is really good at solving problems, not all of them. And they need to be guided by policy and by ethics and by civil society, no question. But if we can align policy and ethics and civic discourse and nonprofits and private sector entities to solve problems together, we could do something amazing. And I I want the private sector on our side. Uh, We just need to find the smart ones and the, the ones with the right attitude. Uh, they're in the minority, but I, I see more and more of them, and I think people do get it. Um, unfortunately, for every one of those companies, you do see maybe 10 others that are kind of greedy, short-term thinkers, and we need to 
we need to think um, how to encourage one while reforming the other. Yes, very interesting, very interesting. Now, 2.0 over the next year, what can we expect next? You, you mentioned that it's movement to a more of a digital kind of world. So w- will there be a drawdown to book or are you expecting this to be kind of modular series of distributed information projects? Um, it's going to be all digital, much more modular. We're not doing another book. Um, books are great, um, but they, I mean, the Drawdown book is one of the best-selling climate books in the last decade or two, right? It's amazing, but it's still sold in the hundreds of thousands of copies, which yes. for nonfiction is amazing. But you know, I'm sorry, YouTube can reach that in an afternoon, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah. uh, you know, we want to get to a much larger reach and much more um, current and contemporary and on the fly. So, the book is a great thing. We'll continue to work with the publisher to update it and improve, you know, if, you know, update the numbers and maybe we'll do a second edition, but not another. I don't. Nothing on the current plans is for another book within our organization. Um, Paul Hawken, who originally was, you know, one of the founders of Drawdown, he's now left, and he's off writing another book about regeneration, which is kind of a a little bit of an intellectual sequel to the concept of Drawdown. So I'm very curious to see what he does with that as a kind of provocative, thoughtful book. Very excited to see what happens there. But within the Project Drawdown, we're going to be focusing on this digital platform with you know research that's being updated weekly, monthly, as needed, with new tools, things on the fly, a directory that could be changing by the day. Um, and the best way to do that is digital, and it's cheaper and reaches more people more quickly. And, and also the kind of lingua franca of the Internet today is the short-form video. Uh, YouTube puts out you know, a billion and a half short videos a day to the world. And we've been largely absent in that conversation, in that space. Uh, I think it's time for Drawdown to jump in much more with social media, with uh, short-form video, with digital platforms that are smart and help people share and connect with each other. Um, you know, this is almost everybody saying this today, but a lot of folks will ask uh, scientists or policy experts on climate change, well, what's the thing I can do? personally about climate change and the best answer i hear is like well learn more about it and share what you learned with others and so drawdown hopefully can provide resources that can be shared more easily too whether it's links to really cool videos or hey here's a good project i just read about click over here and learn about it and here's a hundred more just like it or here's the latest research so we want to make shareable kind of nuggets um, that are up-to-date shareable and really compelling so that's it's more tactical um, switch towards the digital away from uh, just books, but the book will keep up to date as long as we can too. Great, that's a great vision. I, I spoke earlier to Brett Jenks of Rare, who, who about the mm-hmm. you know the potential for behavior change and sharing and learning from other people, and you know, social media clearly has such a vital role to play. So that there, so that's a great vision, and I guess Drawdown.org will be at the heart of this information. So listeners can continue to check that out as well as the social media, as well as Twitter and and Facebook for ongoing information. Yeah, so- and YouTube as well. Yeah, please. Um, yeah, if I could plug a little bit. Yeah, we're um, drawdown.org will be continue to be the home site for us. Um, it, this will be done gradually, a little piece at a time. We're still a very small organization with a small staff and a very tiny budget. So we're going to do what we can, when we can, on the fly. Um, and that will also allow us to learn by doing. Um, so I think, you know, we'll, we'll put out things. Maybe we'll make a few mistakes and fix them and, you know, learn how to do it better. Uh, so I encourage people to keep keep an eye on that. Uh, starting later in the fall, towards the end of the year, we'll start to see some pretty new things there, which I think will be exciting. 
Um, but also social media is probably the best way to follow us. And we're um, on all the usual channels uh, at Project Drawdown, one word. Um, it's a good way to follow us on Twitter, you know, on Facebook and all the rest. Well, that's a fantastic vision, a fantastic discussion. And I thank you so much. Uh, Drawdown is just such a rich resource and so full of positivity. And I wish you the very best of success turning that into action. I know it's already in action, but bringing it to the next stage. And thank you so much for taking the time today to share all the work you're doing. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us on this uh, great journey of podcasts you've been doing. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.